Hi guys, welcome to the first Chronicles podcast of the year with me, Max Miller. And me, Hannah Phillips. So normally how the podcast works is that we have someone from the field of journalism, so for example, print, TV or radio, give us talks on how to get into journalism or how journalism is changing. But this week we had a very own lecturer, Kate Ironside, giving us a talk on the European Union and how Brexit could impact the UK. Some of the topics covered in the talk were how the EU was formed, how the UK was brought into the EU, the Brexit vote, how countries reacted when Germany was reunified, and if the troubles in Ireland restart. But first, Kate started with how the EU was formed. What we have up here is Jean-Claude Monet and Robert Schumann. Their names are slight giveaway, they are both French. They are certainly not the same age as you. They may not be the same gender, the same ethnicity, the same religion or what, but the important thing is that you understand that they are human, all right? They go through human experiences and to understand why they built what is now the European Union, you need to understand what this generation went through. So let's imagine what they were like when they were little, because old men do start off little. Gents, be forewarned, you'll end up uh, receding hairlines, pot bellies. Oh, so depressing. Never mind. Let's imagine what they were like when they were little. These are not them. These are just two, presumably little Scottish boys from the right era. We're talking, you know, late Victorian uh, century. But there is a commonality in little boys. Um, let's have a look at little boys from today. They all like sticks. They have an impish grin. When they fall over, they run to mum. And when they ran to mum, one of the stories mum would tell them is about how Papa, because they're French, and Uncle Jacques and Uncle Pierre went to fight the Germans, or the Prussians as they were then known, in the Franco-Prussian War that created the German state. Okay, so they were told about that. Uncle Pierre didn't come back, but Papa did, and hence the little boys are here. But little boys grow up don't they? And then they turn into you lot. They turn into your age. And what were they doing at your age? They were fighting in World War One. France was back at war with Germany. And they saw their classmates killed, their brothers killed, their cousins killed, their villages, their towns and their homes decimated. But, good news, our guys survived. And they went on. They, res they resumed their careers, went in the civil service, carried on in the military. Some, God help us, went into politics and journalism and all the other things. And they did that usual thing that happens to you in, in, as you grow older. They married and they had kids of their own. And then their little boys grew up and they committed this generation, whose Uncle Pierre went to fight, they themselves had fought in World War One. They then committed the cardinal sin because they sent their little boys to fight the Germans again. Three generations. They sent them to... I, don't, let's have the argument about, yes, obviously um, they had to fight the Nazi regime and all the rest of it. It still resulted in dead boys. And the problem, as they saw it, Three times in 70 years, Germany had invaded France. The trouble is, Germany is a whopping big area with no natural boundaries. There's a lovely natural boundary between France and the UK, and it's called the English Channel. And if we want to invade each other, we have to get into a boat and row across it. If 
France wants to invade Spain, they've got to climb over the Pyrenean Mountains. But there is no natural border that says where Germany stops and France starts. And these men thought, the trouble is it's nation states. Nation states are the problem. We need to save our grandchildren. They kicked about the idea, shall we have a political union? And everybody went, yo, political union with the ex-Nazis? Don't think so. Shall we merge all our armies so we can't fight together? Nah. You think you're going to have French regiments commanded by former Nazis? That wasn't happening. They went for the customs union. Have you all heard of the phrase the customs union? Basically, a customs border, I want to trade with uh, Lucy. Okay? Lucy has a country. I live in Cateland and I want to trade with Lucy in Lucyland. So I'm going to take my goods and I get to the border and I'm going to get away from Max's mic so I'll come back again. And then somebody say, you've got some goods. <laughs> and I have to pay a tax called a customs on my lovely laptops that I want to bring in and sell in Lucyland. But unfortunately, that means my laptops are now more expensive than the laptops made in Lucyland where they don't have to pay the extra tax to come in. So it's more difficult for me to trade in Lucyland. What the Founding Fathers thought, if we get rid of the customs borders, if we get rid of the taxes on the borders of people trying to bring goods into trade, it will make it easier for us to trade with each other, hold that thought, and that's important because the more we trade with each other, the more our economic interests are tied together, the less likely it is we're going to kill each other in war. So it was trying to tie us together or tie those countries that were in at the start together. So essentially what that analogy means is that there have been three generations of hurt and they weren't prepared to go through any more. So in order for that to happen, the European countries suggested to form an alliance that would prevent more war and bloodshed. Now, personally, I had no idea that was how the EU was formed. I thought it was just something as simple as a trade idea, but it was actually much more than that. And I was generally surprised to hear that. To be honest, I get why they did it. They didn't want to see their kids go through the same experience they did. And I find it quite interesting that they used that, that their experiences and the bloodshed and the war to, to create something much better and, and form an alliance rather than f have that fuel more hatred and more war. Okay, so up next we have uh, how the UK was brought into the EU. And Kate explained that in a very in-depth way. One of the reasons we said no is because in all these conflicts, in all these wars, we had never been invaded. It wasn't quite as visceral and utter for us as it was for continental Europe. And this was not a left-right issue, another problem that exists and, uh, in politics today. The Labour left-wingers thought this European club was a nasty capitalist plot to crush the working man. And this very much informs Jeremy Corbyn's lukewarm, tepid to virtually non-existent enthusiasm for the EU as we know it today. The Conservatives, on the other hand, on the right wing of the political debate, were going, way, hang on, if we club together and agree to do things jointly, this compromises our national sovereignty. We've got to agree with people on things that we used to just do by ourselves. I just want you to listen to this. This was written in 1970, 50 years ago. A journalist 
had a chat with a senior conservative right-winger and concluded there is a struggle beginning for the soul of the Tory party. It is only just beginning and the principal focus will be Europe. Fifty years later, that struggle is coming to a climactic explosion. Will they fight every inch of the way or will we lead the flight from sovereignty? The politician, the Conservative John Biffin, believes there's a strong, almost primeval force of nationalism in this country. He regrets that it was first tapped by the immigration issue. Oh my God, how often have we heard that in the current debate? And would have preferred it to be Europe first, the rest later. All the flaws, all the problems that we see in today's Brexit debate were evident there, as we call 1973, taken in by a Conservative government. Conservative government is going to take us out, but it was a Conservative government who took us in. So what changed? Does anybody know what changed? Then it was a custom union, it was essentially a trading deal. Does anybody know what changed to fuel the Euroscepticism and the hostility to the EU in this country? Does anybody know? Well, the EU itself changed changed its name several times. I'm just calling it the EU for the sake of continuity. It was quite interesting to hear how the Labour Party Conservatives were fiercely divided about joining the EU, with Labour seeing it as a good thing from a trading point of view, but the Conservatives felt like, I don't know, it was almost like we were losing that sense of pride and individuality that with something that we'd relied on for years and, and maybe even centuries. I completely agree. I think not many people in the UK were completely convinced by the idea of the EU and as we hadn't shared the same type of pain the other countries had, it wasn't quite the same. You can see that reflected in the stance the Conservatives took on joining the EU regardless of its trading benefits. But regardless of this, the UK would join the EU in January 1973 and would go on to be in the EU for 46 years before the infamous Brexit vote in 2016, where 52% of the UK voted to leave but the problem is how to leave the EU, and is something that at the time of this recording has still not been decided. As the EU had developed all these things, a single currency, lost the veto, a deepening of the relationships and the range of powers that the EU could do, there was this backlash, particularly but not exclusively in this country. Nigel Farage and his UKIP outfit were winning Elections. They won the European elections of 2014. There were an awful lot of Conservative Eurosceptics who were thinking, oh my God, he's taking our voters. We need to be more Eurosceptic. And anyway, actually, we rather agree with him. We got to the point where Cameron says, Conservative leader says, right, okay, this is too much of a divisive issue. Let's have an heated debate. Let's have a referendum, which he lost. So then we get to today negotiating Brexit. Some of you may have had the misfortune of seeing your parents divorce, which is never a pleasant thing, or had divorces in the family, and they can be mucky and bitter. And actually, it can take sometimes it can take years to sort out as you unravel two people's lives, rearrange a family in two different contortions. We are having to unravel 40 years of close cooperation, and it is not easy. It wasn't helped that the esteemed leaders of the Brexit uh, campaign didn't actually have a plan because they weren't expecting to win. They really weren't. It was a bit of a surprise. And then something, oh gee, we've now got to deliver this. 
But hey, they've had a bit of time to put their pretty little minds to it. Um, <coughs> Theresa May, who replaced David Cameron, did give it a go. Didn't work out very well. Everybody kept opposing her. She couldn't get her deal through Parliament. It was torpedoed three times. I was quite shocked to hear that it was a Conservative government that led us into the EU and it will be a Conservative government that is taking us out. But I mean, let's be honest, Brexit has been an absolute shambles, hasn't it? It's taken us two Prime Ministers before we're finally, and I say finally lightly, because this is the UK government and things can change, but we're supposed to leave on the 31st of October. Do you think the UK will regret its decision to leave? So honestly, I think leaving the EU at the moment sounds like a really good idea. Everyone seems to want it all just to be over now. However, I think once we do finally leave the EU, Brits will start to feel the impact of not having all the perks we do currently, especially when travelling to other countries part of the EU. In terms of regretting the decision to leave, I'm not sure. It's been such a lengthy and unnecessary process that once it's done and out the way, people will definitely be relieved. Its impact, however, we won't know for a good few years, so it's possible, but I can't give a definite answer on that one, I'm afraid. Well, it's, uh, it's always going to be uh, interesting because uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has said that it will possibly be bumpy after the few years uh, that we have left. But in moving on to the next part is so that, uh, that I thought was interesting that Kate mentioned was, so in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell and it was the divide between the Democratic West and Communist USSR. And one country in particular was not keen to see Germany reunified. And that country was France, who had fought three wars against them, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871, World War I and World War II. November the 9th will be the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, but France had an interesting strategy of scaling down Germany's economic dominance, ensuring that it would not be invaded in the future. And the French response to this was to find some way. They wanted to nail down... Anybody familiar with the story of Gulliver's Travels? Who ends up in Liverpool being tied down. This is what the French wanted to do. They wanted to fr stop this new German state being a threat. They weren't worried they were going to be invaded, but they were worried about the economic power of the reunited Germany. And so the French president came up with a cunning plan. He would take over the German currency by creating a super currency, the euro. Francois Mitterrand was the man who pushed the euro. And the key point about the euro was it would have to be overseen by European Central Bank, which would be chaired by a French man. <coughs> so there would be a European currency that would work to European, secretly he meant French, interests. And he said, oh, by the way, can we have more political union? I'll give you, economic, I'll give you monetary <coughs> union. Will you give me political union? Because I am frightened of what my people might do in the future because of the, the boundaries, because of our economic power, because of the past. And Mitterrand said, yeah, 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 yeah. Got the monetary union. Political union went a bit slower on. Not so bothered. Well, the French weren't that bothered about it. But from the British perspective, it was, hang on a minute, we joined a trading club. We weren't scarred in the same way that they were by the wars. We don't want to give up the pound, was the view from Britain, you're changed with the game. We've already accepted the loss of the veto. Not so sure about this. We are not joining it, by the way. You get on and do it, and they did, but we didn't join. The third game changer 
was the influx of all those former East European countries who had been behind the Iron Curtain. It was the biggest enlargement the EU had. Absolutely whopping. So you now had free movement of people from Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, um, and so forth, across the whole of the EU. Immigration came up the line as a source of controversy. <coughs> and the other difficulty was that the EU was grinding into a state of paralysis. It had been designed originally for a group of six, then it adjusted for nine, and then it adjusted for 17. Now it's going to be 25. It was on its knees. Ah. We will reshape the rules. We'll call ourselves a European Union. We will have a president of a council. Uh, we'll give the European Parliament more powers. You had two strains of thought. You still have it in the EU. The federalists who oppose nation states, who essentially think a pan-European superpower is a good idea, and those who are very committed to nation states. And there was a clash of ideas. But you ended up with a new deal, a new treaty, um, which brought in the first president of the European Council. So I think it's quite interesting that the German Chancellor agreed to this single currency due to his fear of what people, the people of Germany may do. It seems like he didn't really have much of a grip over his people. What do you think, Max? Well, I think it was quite a sly strategy by France to almost ensure they wouldn't have to go to war again or, to, or have to worry about any economic embargoes from Germany when they would eventually become a strong economic country. But I also think the, the key part of that is the UK not opting to sign up to the euro because was it was kind of like the start of the the strains in the relationship with the EU. And I can understand why the UK didn't want to sign up to the euro because, you know, the UK had never really been a part of, you know, a, there's that massive border between, you know, obviously France and UK, whereas we're divided by the sea. Um, but the, U, Euro, the EU had a plan of, you know, reuniting the countries, which is which you know the UK were obviously didn't really want to put you know be a part of um and you know and that's obviously put tensions between both the UK and the EU which you know you can still see to this day um but I also think that one of the hardest tasks that the UK government has faced since making the decision to leave the EU is how to sort of the Irish backstop which divides the, the Republic of Ireland from Northern Ireland and was the scene of some terrible atrocities during the war Northern Ireland spent 30, 40 years, effectively having a civil war between those who wanted Northern Ireland to rejoin the rest of Ireland and those who wanted to remain part of the UK. And the men with guns exist today, but it was bloody and it was brutal. Thousands of people died. Finally, in 1998, we got a peace deal that ensured and delivered peace in Northern Ireland. So instead of slaughtering each other, they could... Um, spend their time arguing over health and education and all the normal things in life. And it was a huge achievement. Boris's Brexit solution um, is to take all of the UK, including Northern Ireland, out of the customs union. Jeremy Corbyn would leave us all in the customs union, would leave the EU formally, but we'd still be part of the customs union. It's a bit of a pick and mix approach to EU membership. You know, night with sweets, but hey. But Boris's plan was, no, we're all off. We're going, uh, 
we are going to come out of the customs union. So that means inevitably you have to have some check somewhere. Boris Johnson is saying, listen, we can use technology, we can be flexible, you don't have to have the checks at the border, you can have the checks at the factories. But whatever happens, there will have to be customs officers doing some form of checks. And those customs officers will be a lightning rod for the Republican men with guns. And they will start, almost certainly those men will start, those customs officers will be attacked. So then the police will have to come in and then the police will be attacked and then the army will have to come in and we are sliding back to the hell of the troubles. The men with the guns are still there. They haven't gone away. They say it's the unfinished revolution. One of the main concerns about the removal of the Irish backstop is that the IRA will rise up again and start to cause chaos in Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland and England which neither country will want a repeat of because of the terrible atrocities that occurred during the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, which saw many bombings and shootings which claimed the lives of thousands. As Kate said, all the IRA need is a match, and we could see a repeat of everything that occurred before during our lifetime, which honestly scares me, because I don't want to go out somewhere, let's just say like somewhere like a shopping centre, and have to face the fear of a bomb threat, and potentially not come home to my family, because the IRA don't discriminate when they plant their bombs, and there have been cases where children have been caught up in their attacks. I think Boris Johnson seems quite keen to get rid of the Irish backstop once we leave the EU and introduce some form of customs along the Irish-Northern Irish border. That may even be the match to light the fire. It's a scary thought indeed, especially after hearing stories from people who've lived through IRA attacks. Many innocent people were hurt, and to think we may even live through it again is not something I, want, I think anyone wants to see happen. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand, has a completely different approach to leaving the EU regarding the backstop. I believe his approach is that he would like it to remain while still maintaining the terms of rest of the rest of Brexit, which does seem like a nice idea till you try and negotiate it and then it becomes an issue, which we have seen before. And with that, that is the end of our podcast for today. I just want to say, Hannah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure as always. You've been listening to the University of Northampton Multimedia Journalism Chronicles podcast. We'll have another podcast with different presenters next week.